I'm Dr. Regina Kep. I'm a board-certified clinical psychologist, and I specialize with older adults and families. I created the Psychology of Aging podcast to dispel myths about aging, destigmatize mental health for older adults, and improve access to mental health care. Whether you're an older adult, a family member caring for an older adult, or a professional working with older adults, you're in the right place. And one more thing. If you're a licensed mental health provider like a social worker, psychologist, counselor, therapist, or an aging life care expert or certified care manager looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. All right, let's jump into today's episode. September is Suicide Prevention Month. So I wanted to take some time in this podcast to focus on older adults and suicide risk as well as suicide prevention. In this episode, I'll start by telling you a story and then we'll have an interview with Dr. Yates Conwell, one of the leading experts in aging and suicide. After the interview, I'll share statistics on cultural factors that we need to be mindful of as we think about suicide risk and suicide prevention. Because we are talking about suicide, in today's podcast, I want to just give a disclaimer here. Please check in with yourself and decide, is this the right time for me to be listening to a podcast about suicide risk and suicide prevention? And make a determination for yourself. Is this the right time for me at this time in my life? If it is and you find that you are overwhelmed or triggered, please reach out for support with a mental health provider or a friend, wherever you get your support. Also, I'll say if you or somebody you love or somebody you're caring for is at risk for harming themselves or others, please call 988 for help. One of the things that I struggle with with this podcast is I want to give you clinical examples of my own, but to protect the privacy of people I work with, I can't share my own clinical examples in this public forum. So I want to share a story that I read in the New York Times in 2019. This story came out in December of 2019 about the Shavers, Mr. and Mrs. Shaver. I think they were together since the 50s. They were high school sweethearts. They were incredibly devoted to one another, had three daughters and grandchildren. And over time, Mrs. Shaver developed Alzheimer's disease. And it became increasingly difficult for Mr. Shaver to care for her. And one day, uh, Mr. Shaver had given his wife, per autopsy reports, had given his wife a high dose of oxymorphone and then had had her lay down to go to sleep, shot her in the back of the neck, and then put a towel over his head and shot himself in the mouth. And his daughter was concerned because they talked every day and he didn't answer his phone that day. And so police went over for a welfare check and found them. He didn't leave a note except for a little note to his granddaughter who was going to be married two weeks later that said, may you both have many years of happiness. May life be good. This really is a is a tragic situation. The daughters believe that he may have tried a sort of more peaceful route to ending their lives. He never wanted his wife to move into a long-term care community. He didn't want himself to move into a long-term care community. He called it the place. He himself in the autopsy and review of his medical records was found to have had cancer himself and 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 that's how he chose to end their lives. The daughters, they say this wouldn't have been the ending that they would have chosen for him, but they don't hold it against him. So in today's episode, you're going to learn about what's called the five D's of suicide prevention. So that's D like disease, disconnectedness, deadly means, disability, and depression. At the end of the episode, I'm going to share some strategies of starting a conversation with somebody that you're concerned may be suicidal. And I hope that you use them. I hope that you use these strategies. 
All right, let's jump into this interview with Dr. Yates Conwell. Dr. Yates Conwell is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, where he directs the Geriatric Psychiatry Program and the University of Rochester's Medical Center's Office for Aging Research and Health Services. He co-directs the University of Rochester Center for the Study and Prevention of Suicide. Dr. Conwell received his medical training at the University of Cincinnati and completed his psychiatry residency and a fellowship in geriatric psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. In addition to teaching, clinical care, and service system development, Dr. Conwell directs an interdisciplinary program of research in aging, mental health services, and suicide prevention. I cannot imagine a better guest and expert to talk about mental health and aging, and particularly suicide and suicide prevention among older adults. In today's episode, we talk about the importance of listening, listening to older adults when they talk about what's causing their distress and what might be contributing to some of the reluctance to have these really difficult and important conversations. Speaking of conversations, let's jump into this one. How did you get interested in suicidality and suicide prevention in older adults? I knew from the get-go that uh, I was interested in mental health and, and older adults in particular, actually. I think it stemmed mainly from an experience I had as a college student working in a, uh, in a rehabilitation hospital, actually, where there were many uh, older adults who were there for extended periods of time recovering from falls and broken hips and uh, strokes and the like. Uh, and I was just so impressed with how hard they work and, and how determined they were and all the resources they were able to draw on to overcome those really major challenges to their independence and, and to their, um, their being. And so um, it really came from a kind of a strengths-based approach recognizing that there's a tremendous wealth of resources there. And I wanted to learn more about that. Um, and then going into medical school and residency and being able to contrast that kind of, um, of strength on the one hand with the remarkable contrast when it goes off the rails on the other, and then recognizing that the, the two come together that uh, people who have um, encountered challenges can either do very well with that or on occasion not. Uh, the suicidal person, older person, um, kind of is the worst outcome then of that. So how do we help those people or prevent that by helping those people find, um, connect with uh, the resources that, that have made them older adults to begin with, survivors. So yes. that's yeah, we're all striving to get there. We're all striving to get into to older adulthood. None of us want to die young. And right. And we want to do it well. Yes. You mentioned the profound resilience and strengths that help older adults age well. And you also mentioned when, um, when there's suicidality or, uh, untreated depression that worsens and worsens and worsens, that there's a worst case outcome or there's a, a profound um, toll that that can take on older adults. And I think you were hitting on or alluding to um, suicide rates for older adults. Can you talk about that, what the suicide rates are for older adults? Um, when you look around the world at all the countries that report such statistics to the World Health Organization, what you see is a, is a trend with increasing rates of suicide across the life course for both men and women, um, men tending to have higher rates than women. In the United States, it's, it's a little different. Uh, we see increasing rates with age for men. And that's accounted for largely by the majority population, older white men. Um, African-American, Hispanic men tend to have a more varied um, kind of pattern over the course of the life 
with a peak in younger adulthood and somewhat of a rise in later adulthood, but not as high. And then for women um, in the United States, interestingly, suicide rates tend to keep quite low, but peak at midlife and then drop a little bit into older adulthood. So in later life, what one sees is a really very pronounced um, difference between suicide rates for men and women, where it's about 12 times higher, actually 10 or 12 times higher in old, old adulthood for, for men, for white men in particular. And old, old starts when? Oh, probably uh, 75 and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read a statistic that something like um, there are four attempts to one death by suicide among older adults, where younger adults is twenty-five to one. Are you familiar with that, or am I off? No, you're you're quite you're quite right. Um, what I was talking about was uh, suicide, death by suicide, and and it's a remarkably different picture for attempted suicides, wherein those rates tend to be much higher in younger adulthood and very low, actually, in older adulthood. And in older adults, that ratio of suicides to attempted suicides is about two to one or four to one. Two Whereas even. in the over overall population, it's more like the 25 to 40 to one uh, attempts to completed suicides that you see. And in younger adults, um, and uh, later adolescence is actually many more uh, attempted suicides to completed suicides, and they're much more likely to be counted for, for by women. Um, so the pattern is shifted by age, and it's also shifted um, by gender. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y. And some of the reasons for that are what? What do you suspect are reasons for the shift in that pattern? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think we're we're left to speculate a lot about that, but have good reason to think that that at least with regard to the um, the fatalities associated with suicidal behavior, they are much greater in older people, i.e. The ratio of attempted to completed suicide is much lower um, than younger people because older people, first of all, they're more frail. Older people tend to have um, comorbid medical conditions. And so the reserve to survive a suicide attempt, if it's if it's initiated, is, is much lower. So they're more likely to die. Fewer attempts, more deaths by suicide. Um, interestingly and importantly, older people who become suicidal uh, uh, tend to then be more planful and determined to actually end their own lives. It's a less, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the construct of impulsive acts of suicide, but, um, but planful uh, much more so in older adults. They're less likely to be discovered in the act or in the preparation for, or in the aftermath of a suicide. So more likely to die on that basis. And also older people are more likely than younger and middle-aged people to use immediately lethal means, which in this country is firearms. Um, overall about 50 to 55% of suicides are by a firearm. 
um, in older people, that's more like 70 to 75%. So late life suicide is in large part a story of, of men using violent means to, to take their own lives. And white men in particular. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And that racial difference and the gender differences are much even more speculative, um, having to do potentially with issues of, of um, cultural factors, the uh, nature of the social networks in people in which people circulate, the ability to call on others for help, the, the willingness to do that, the resources that can be drawn on in the potentially in the African-American community and in, in the faith communities, the uh, religious communities can be much more easily accessed, acceptable means. Um, but it's fascinating and important to understand how these behaviors unfold in the face of the kinds of stressors that different segments of the population face. And there's a lot of concern currently about how these figures are going to be changing over time, uh, where we're seeing now a relatively rapid increase, although still at overall lower levels in suicide rates, for example, among younger adult and in African-American men. Yeah. Now, we were speculating on what might uh, drive or what might create greater risk for older white men in terms of access to resources. Can you actually talk about your mental health concerns with somebody? Is that culturally acceptable or not? I was also recently giving a presentation on ageism and uh, mental health care. And one of the studies I came across was a 2017 study, so relatively recent, about um, uh, adults of different ages presenting to the ER and younger adults or people under 65, when they uh, endorsed suicidal thoughts or recent behaviors, were more likely to have a suicide risk assessment and, and be sent home with resources if they were discharged. And, and, and significantly fewer older adults who were endorsing suicide and um, uh, were sent home with resources. And if we know the rates are so high, you know, there's also a structural sort of ageism um, the, the point of that study was to talk about, we can do better. You know, that this is happening at many, from many angles, there's a structural angle where how well do providers understand and professionals understand the mental health needs of older adults and resources available? How well do older adults, um, how much access do older adults have to talking about mental health concerns, which is one of the reasons I started this podcast was to make it more commonplace that we can have mental health conversations among older adults and adults of all ages. So um, what do you, what do you make of that in terms of um, on one hand, there's the cultural piece, are men socialized to ask for help around mental health needs no, not, not well, especially older generations. Um, two, how well are the systems supporting older adults when older adults are seeking services for mental health concerns? That's another. And three, you know, then there's the internalized sort of belief, like if I do get these services, can I even benefit? And so there, there's, an, um, there's something called the stereotype embodiment threat, right? That we believe the stereotypes about ourselves as we age, which are inaccurate, but we believe them nonetheless. And that could be harmful in terms of our willingness to take medications like an antidepressant or, or to attend psychotherapy or what do you make of all of that? Yeah. Oh, it, it's, it's uh, a complicated issue, isn't it? There are many different pieces to it. I guess the good news there is that that might suggest different avenues uh, for change that might have an impact on older adult health and and reduce suicide rates. And they're not mutually exclusive. One needs to address these at all sorts of different levels. The uh, um, Institute of Medicine uses these terms of three different levels of preventive interventions. There's the indicated preventive intervention, which targets that individual who is at risk in our discussion, that risk for suicide. The next level is selective preventive interventions, which 
are targeting individuals and groups who share certain characteristics that place them at increased risk. And we can talk about those. And then the, the third is universal preventive interventions, which target the entire population. A lot of what, what um, we were just talking about is attitudinal um, at any one of those levels and um, ageism, the stigma associated with aging, associated with mental illness, associated with suicide as a particular kind of behavior or failure or weakness or something. Um, so all of those things can be, must be really addressed, I think, by attitudinal change, which is cultural, and it's a, a universal preventive intervention approach eventually. Hard to do, um, but, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving is, uh, is, is a thing that's often cited as examples of how really powerful social movements can be built. And there's an awful lot of of advantages, I think we as a society could derive from uh, from somehow making aging and aging well a uh, uh, much more accepted expectation for all of us. I think one of the things that uh, and we we can come back and talk about the selective and the indicated kind of preventions as well. But I I want not to leave the stigma and ageism issue yet because I think it's so important um, that people don't appreciate um, the fact that older people tend to be satisfied with with their lives, um, more so actually than middle-aged and younger people. Speaking of theory, we've also got socio-emotional selectivity theory and Laura Carstensen's work and others, which shows that. Um, but we don't recognize that in older people, I think, because of the ageism to which you were referring. We project our own fears, um, concerns, um, culturally embedded ones uh, onto the aging process. And then as we age, we become older people and we carry those attitudes along with us. But nonetheless, older people still, important not to forget, uh, are by and large, on average, very happy and satisfied with their lives. It's not normal to be depressed. It's not normal to be suicidal. It's not normal to think that your life isn't worth living. Uh, so those are really important attitudinal issues to, to address and, and find ways around them. You know, it's not I mean, moving back to the selective preventive intervention idea. If an older person carries those attitudes and they need help, um, and they're less likely to get it because they're, they have inhibitions against talking about their emotions and so on, um, then we need to design systems in a way that make it okay to do that. So older people aren't going to go to mental health clinics or psychologists and psychiatrists in their private offices. They're going to go to their primary care doctors. That's where the action is in large part for older people because they're going there because they've got all these comorbid medical conditions uh, on average, you know, once a month or thereabouts. Um, and if that is an, a setting in which it is more comfortable and acceptable for that older person to talk about their feelings and, and um, issues related to depression or even suicidal thoughts, they will. They've yeah. got that ability, that capacity. They've, they've thought about this stuff um, off and on probably all their lives. Um, so this isn't, this isn't new to them. And given the opportunity to talk and find ways that are acceptable to them, um, they'll, they'll draw on it. Yeah, you're, you're making me think of the importance of primary care mental health integration. So for years, I worked in a geriatric primary care clinic where I was the mental health provider as part of the primary care team. Uh -huh. And um, and that's how I, I think that's how most even outpatient mental health providers get their older adult clients or patients is that um, they come from other medical providers like yeah. a neurologist or an internist or a primary care provider. 
Right. So you were in an office kind of down the hall and, and the primary right. care doc could walk his or, or her patient in and introduce you and say. Yeah. And so some of the typical scenarios would be um, around grief and loss, a new medical diagnosis, like a cancer or another terminal condition or a neurological illness like ALS or something. Another would be um, stopping driving. Mm-hmm. So I worked with older, typically older men at, at, at a VA. So older veterans who, you know, if, if you want to talk about barriers to talking about emotions, try talking to older veterans. And, um, but what, of course we all have the capacity to do it. And so as soon as we would just kind of build rapport and scratch the surface, older veterans would tell me, older male veterans would tell me, oh, I never knew this would be available. I never knew it would be like this. I always had these ideas about mental health that, you know, I would be laying on a couch. I didn't know it would be this, you know, it was the Freudian view. And so, um, but yeah, so if, you know, a primary care provider would, would instruct the older adult, you know, unfortunately you can't drive safely now. You'll, and and the response would be, well, I'm just going to kill myself if I can't drive. You know, I live in a rural area. What am I going to do? How can I go to the bank? And um, and so then the primary care provider would walk the older family to my office or, um, you know, as veterans. So we would often work with post-traumatic stress disorder if that was coming up. What do you see are some of the risk factors for older adults in suicidality or suicidal thinking? We need to understand what's driving that person's distress. I find it useful to have a framework and the the framework that uh, I think is about as simple as it can get and something this complicated is is what I call the five Ds um, in addition to demography, right? So older, male, white, is um, depression, um, that mental illness is a powerful driver of suicide risk and we need to understand the the underlying condition that somebody has. Um, And for older adults, it's far more often depression, clinical depression, than is the case for other diagnoses. If they're there, they constitute increased risk, definitely, but depression is that much more common uh, in its association with suicide in older people than is the case in middle-aged and younger. so depression. Uh, second is disease or physical illness that um, that older people face a lot of that. Of course, the the um, predictive value of of a depression diagnosis is quite high uh, with regard to suicide outcomes. The predictive value of an older in an older person of physical illness is, of course, very low because it's so the base rate of physical illness is so high. But nonetheless, there are studies that show that certain physical illnesses are additional risk factors above and beyond depression. And those things tend to be neurological conditions, um, uh, central nervous system kinds of things. So it might be strokes or Parkinson's disease or dementia, uh, epilepsy. Um, And then... Um, the third D associated with that is, is disability or, or functioning. In older people, that's just a big deal, of course. Being able to maintain independent functioning um, is critical uh, for older people to be able to optimize that and to help the older person kind of redefine um, what they regard as acceptable independence. And that's a transition that that we all need to go through as our our functioning is impaired. But some people um, can become then increasingly suicidal or at greater risk facing that functional impairment. So that's the the third D. Good. Fourth, uh, disconnectedness. Um, We know that social connections, both the objective measurement of the uh, depth primarily of one's social network, the ability to call on individuals, to feel close to people, to feel as if you belong uh, is critically important to health. So it's both objective and subjective in that. 
And there are lots of important studies now that show that the lack of that social connectedness is associated with suicide risk, as well as with mortality from hypertension and diabetes, uh, the likelihood of, of developing cognitive impairment uh, and on from there. So that is a big, big um, modifiable risk factor, I would add, important concept. And then the, uh, the fifth is deadly means. Back to that notion that older adults who die by suicide do so with a firearm. Something like 96% of firearm deaths <clears throat> among older people in the U.S. each year are suicides. So that link between firearms and suicide is especially tight for older people. And it's another um, of those five Ds I think we need to fold into our diagnostic uh, process just simply by understanding as is the recommendation for primary care practitioners and others that you need to know if an older person has a firearm in the home and develop strategies for uh, managing that risk if they become depressed or suicidal. So I hope that's a, a useful framework. One of the really important concepts here, though, when one thinks about those five, right, is they're not just a list. Right. Think of it as a Venn diagram. So each of these domains is overlapping. They're all there. And, um, and people move in and out of each of these domains. You become ill, get treatment, you get better. You become ill, but it causes functional impairment, a loss. Um, you're an older person and uh, you lose your hearing. Very common but it affects, so then there's a functional impairment. But that functional impairment and that physical underlying condition affects your ability to connect with others socially. Um, I tell the, and, and on from there, that, that then those are predisposing factors to depression. And if you happen to have a firearm in your bedside table, a handgun, um, then that combination as one moves through those different overlapping domains to the center in which all five of those are present. Uh, that's, that's the scary situation. It's complicated. There are all these different moving parts. The good news about that is that um, it is a dynamic process and that because there are all these different contributors, <clears throat> it actually isn't that hard because you can change any one of those five, and you're changing the risk, right? If you've got a highly suicidal older person, I don't want to overstate it, that person you might you know, get right to the emergency room and, and, yeah. and have treatment initiated. Um, but if there's a depressed, functionally impaired, hopeless older person, and they've got a firearm in the home, and you can develop some kind of agreement to have that firearm um, removed by a family member to, to a safe place for the time being, um, then that immediately changes that level of risk, right? Yes. You can say the same thing about um, any one of those five. Uh, if somebody's feeling disconnected, then we begin to think about how to help that individual feel more connected, even as all of these other domains are still pertinent. Or disease, of course, the, the, the diagnosis and the treatment of the illness, the optimization of <clears throat> functioning by instituting some kind of uh, some supportive uh, intervention, environmental intervention, um, or depression, diagnosis and treatment for which, as you know, we have a lot of really effective treatments for depression in older people. So that the good news is that you don't need to take it all on. You need to understand that it's all there and then begin picking things off that are of priority to that older person, generate that relationship, begin instituting the interventions, increase the level of, of hope that they can experience. Yes. Now say families are concerned about a loved one in that situation. What would you recommend that families do? If you're worried about an older person, in your family, 
then do two things. First of all, step back and ask yourself, um, what am I worried about? Um, I, I need to check my own biases and attitudes at the door because um, it's so often is the case that we project our anxieties about aging onto that older person. Uh, and it may be our, our own discomfort that we're picking up on. But recognize that, but then go into the room and, and just tell them that you're worried. Ask them what's up. So often in our society, I think in particular, again, it's that complicated ageist thing. As younger people and middle-aged folks, we're reluctant to talk to our seniors about how they're feeling. It's not the way we were raised. It's not the way they were raised to be asked those questions. There's the caregiver, um, care receiver kind of relationship where the parent takes care of the child. And then at some point in normal aging, that relationship reverses. And that's a tough developmental milestone for families often. So people need to work on that and get comfortable with the idea of having these conversations and taking the responsibility of just asking mom or dad, what's up? How are you feeling? I'm worried about you. Um, and I think people will be not always, but more often than not surprised that the older person's capable of talking, uh, beginning to, to share something of what they're going through. And that in and of itself is enormously helpful. And then beyond that going and, and if you remain concerned, helping that older person recognize that there may be help available and looking for it, probably in the primary care doctor's office to begin with. Yeah. You know, that simple act of a conversation and expressing concern to adults talking together attends to that D of disconnectedness. Mm -hmm. Just the simple act of having a conversation requires connection. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you if, are you aware of the uh, AFSP's, what do they call it? Uh, share the awkward or something like that. So they have a really very interesting, very effective campaign, um, public service announcements for adolescents. One asks the other, you know, they're sitting there looking awkward the way teenagers would, trying to think about these things together. And then one finally turns to the other and says something like, what's up? I know when I, I, I for 10 years, I was teaching um, psychology interns and postdoctoral fellows and medical residents in geriatric mental health. Sometimes, you know, the, the way mental health providers are in some and some graduate programs are being trained now is to sort of apply a model to an illness, right? And sometimes that wouldn't work so well working with older adults, in my opinion, doesn't work so well working with anybody. But, um, and the student would come back to me and say, you know, I'm trying to do the, uh, kind of behavioral therapy with this structure, with this older adult. And I would say, well, what, what about if you just have a conversation, just make it a conversation. Don't make it an application. And the, the student would try it and it would be night and day, you know, and just the importance of connection and the, the bridging that awkward that, you know, I think we all want to be seen and understood and valued and heard, especially when we're going through transitions that are, we've never experienced before with illness and um, changes in our ability and our functioning and requiring assistance from others. And just all of these, you know, what our life is like doesn't match how we see ourselves. And that can be, you know, there's a difference between our, our real need versus our self-concept, like how we perceive ourselves, And that, and that conflict is so complicated internally for people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that just being seen and heard and valued is 
is a remarkable intervention in and of itself. Not that it would be the only intervention for, for this, but just how valuable these family conversations are, how valuable bridging that awkward space with curiosity and understanding and connection. Exactly. I thank you for sharing that. That's so important. Actually, just, just to get it right, <clears throat> the program that AFSP has, has funded is called Seize the Awkward. I recommend it to you, but it, the point being that uh, don't we need that for our conversations with older people too? And we need something that kind of demystifies it and says, older people, sit down and talk with us um, and uh, be connected. And, and that gets us a long way. And maybe it is oftentimes not sufficient because of the underlying problems that need to be addressed, but necessary in order to get the older person engaged in the process of diagnosis and treatment. Yeah. That was very helpful. These five D's, the importance of a conversation, just the, the need for, with, with relentless concern, the need for uh, professional care and then professionals to have, um, you know, understanding of these five D's as well, especially in primary care, you know, I worry in primary care, we hear of just shorter, shorter and shorter um, times with patients. You know, I hear so many families, especially around dementia disorders who say, you know, we don't get any information from primary care. And I worry, you know, I don't want to vilify primary care because I think they are kind of left to do a lot of work with a tiny amount of time, which is insufficient to treat all these needs. What are, what's your take on that? Well, you know, I did, did a bunch of um, studies with the so-called psychological autopsy method where somebody's died by suicide and you go back and you try to reconstruct really what, what may have happened by talking with family members and, and also providers and looking at all sorts of records and that kind of thing. Um, and I had the opportunity to talk with a lot of primary care doctors who had lost a patient to suicide. And it was profoundly uh, difficult for them. Yes. They're in, in the business um, of primary care to help people. And it feels like a failure sometimes. But I think it's really important. I, my, my theory actually is that primary care Doctors, and I'll come back to that concept in a minute, um, are, are preventing suicide all the time. Yes. <laughs> you back up a little bit and, you know, it is those selective preventive interventions. It's the treating pain effectively. It's um, helping people uh, through rehab and optimizing their independent functioning and recognizing and treating their depression and facilitating referrals uh, to folks like you when, when it gets more complex. These are all things that happen in routine primary care practice. I think that's happening all the time, and I think they do a great job. Um, but times are changing, and you know, I, 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 there's reason to be concerned, I think, about how time available by a primary care doctor to sit with and, and diagnose and effectively treat this complex mix of contributing factors um, that may not, may not be enough. On the other hand, primary care is changing and health systems are changing, both in terms of the delivery of care as well as the financing of care. Um, I think we've got to move as thoughtfully and systematically aggressively as possible to that notion of integrated care, where it's not about actually the primary care doctor seeing the patient for eight minutes. It's the whole episode of care. It starts with the patient's ability to get in to see the doctor quickly by calling up and and having access uh, that they feel comfortable with. It's the smile of the receptionist when they get there. You know, it's the time with the doctor. It's the ability then to trust that within that treatment context, they're going to get the different services that they need that are important to them. Uh, so it's it's their own priorities that then drive the nature of the care. 
And then with regard to financing, you know, we're, we're struggling as, as a nation to figure out how to pay for health care. Uh, and there are terms that people may not be familiar with, but uh, things like value-based purchasing and so on, where the uh, reimbursement for the services that are provided actually can hinge on the quality of those services and the ability actually to get the end result which might be by having somebody see you or having a social work uh, consult or being uh, written a prescription for the air conditioner that they need to make their lives comfortable at home in right. the hot summer. Yeah. All of these things are, are ways to approach uh, the promise and the limitations of primary care practice. Now, Dr. Conwell, what would you say for families who are hearing from their loved ones some either flippant statements about suicide or clear statements about suicide, what would you recommend to families in that instance? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, really important. We've talked about a little of this, that the first thing is to hear them, uh, to, to take seriously what they're saying and, and not let one's own anxiety uh, get in the way of, of actually being available to and asking that question of how are you doing and I'm concerned about you and let's find some help. And then to, to help that older person find that help. Um, and you know, very likely that might be with suggesting that uh, they see their primary care doctor going along with them, helping provide the information that that doctor can then use to make that diagnosis and draw the resources in that are necessary. Um, but there may be others as well. There, there may be that if one is very concerned that one thinks about asking if they could take the firearms for a while to keep them safe, to um, be more present perhaps, uh, to, to find, to, to help with the connectedness issue while they uh, get the care that they need. So ask the question uh, and then help that older person realize that there are um, probably really easily accessible answers and let's get together and try to find them. Yes. And I'll just put a plug that treatment for depression like psychotherapy is equally effective for older adults as it is for adults at younger ages. And so um, I know there's a lot of misconception about that, and primary care is a great place to start, like you're saying. I'll also link to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline for families who are very concerned and need immediate uh, mm -hmm. attention. Sure. And I want to thank you, Dr. Conwell, for being here and sharing so much. The five Ds are great rubric for helping families just to conceptualize what's happening. And, you know, sometimes we get in tunnel vision. It's hard to see the the sort of full nature of what can be causing distress for, for folks and especially older adults. That's very helpful conceptualization tool, the five D's and, and the importance of connection and conversation. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, I've enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. I really like in this interview, how Dr. Conwell was encouraging us to lean in and have that awkward conversation. So let's talk for a minute about how to help an older adult who may be suicidal. The first thing that you want to do is talk with them about what you've been noticing in a compassionate and concerned way. So you might say something like, I've been noticing that you haven't been yourself lately. You are staying in bed a lot more and you're kind of more blue than you usually are. I'm really concerned about you. Or another thing you could try is I've been worried about you. Can we talk about what you're going through? If not, who are you willing to talk to about what you're going through? Or a third option might be, it seems like you're going through a really difficult time. How can I help you find someone to talk to? How can I help you find help? So you want to start that conversation. You'll also want to encourage them to see their primary care provider to rule out any medical concerns that could be causing uh, suicidal ideation. You might encourage a family member to accompany the older adult to their medical appointments or mental health appointments and share their concerns about 
increasing depressive symptoms or suicidal ideation. You might encourage family members to email or fax their own concerns and what they're observing to the older adult's medical providers. If you are working with an older adult, you might get a release of information to talk with the medical providers as well. You, as a mental health provider, might follow up on your concerns about suicide with questions like, do you feel as though life is no longer an option for you? Have you had more thoughts about death and dying? Are you having thoughts about harming yourself? Are you planning to harm yourself or take your life? Is there a gun in the house or a collection of pills? How often are you alone? And of course, as providers, you need to do your part by encouraging removal of pills and weapons or other means, you know, making sure that your clients and colleagues are recommending use of 988, the mental health hotline, 988. And yes, it's for older adults too. You as a mental health provider, senior care provider, if you have a release, could also call the primary care provider or mental health provider that's working with the older adult. As mental health providers, we need to take any talk of suicide seriously, even among older adults. And so this is where we really have to do our work on making sure that we are practicing with an anti-ageist lens. So you need to check in with yourself about any biases you might have about growing older and the value of an older life or the value of a life of somebody living with a disability or an illness and who's also experiencing depression and, and to make sure that your own ageist or ableist perspectives are not influencing the, the quality of care that you're providing someone. So it's really important that you take actions to help. So it's important that you encourage the older adult to see their primary care provider, as we've already discussed, to encourage optimal health with medical conditions and other mental health conditions. You might encourage the older adult um, to spend more time with friends and family and encourage friends and family to potentially be involved in medical and mental health appointments. It's really important to provide education about what's typical with aging and what's not typical with aging. I hear a lot of people make statements that they believe that depression is normal with aging or dementia is normal with aging. And we know that those conditions are not normal with aging and benefit from mental health care. So depression is highly, highly treatable among older adults at the same rates as other age groups. So please encourage older adults to get connected to mental health care if they're experiencing depression. There's a lot that can be done and is highly, highly effective. And by doing this, you're providing hope about treatment. And if you're a mental health provider, you can provide that treatment. It's also important to brainstorm any barriers to getting involved with treatment like transportation or perhaps mobility is an issue. Maybe they have a medical condition that doesn't allow them to be as fluid in their mobility and so they don't drive or they don't they don't trust their body to leave their house so can you provide zoom can a family member help them set up their telehealth appointments and equipment etc i'll also say there's some research done on even when older adults present to the er there was a study in 2017 that showed that that looked at a sort of chart reviews in the ED, the emergency department, and found that older adults, even older adults who were endorsing suicidal ideation, were less likely to be evaluated for mental health concerns and less likely to be referred with mental health support into the community, even after statements about suicide. And so we need to be providing older adults with mental health care for depression, for dementia, for suicidal ideation, and so on. And yes, depression can be treated in the context of dementia, especially in the early stages. So let's all do our part to shift the narrative about mental health and aging. All right. I hope those tips are helpful and I hope you use them. Let's talk for a moment about resilience factors. Studies show that older African-American men and women have some of the lowest rates of suicide. So it really begs us to f discover why. 
what's going on, what's protecting older African-American folks from risk for suicide. And so a group of researchers got together and interviewed 33 African-American women to, to dig into this and to learn more about resilience among Black women. And they found that there was a repertoire of resilience that Black women share, including shared experiences of struggle, centuries of strength building, and what they call the counter evaluation of privilege. And so what that means is that that the experience of having uh, minority stress and racism based stress and trauma has been the reason they have had to cultivate the resilience. And and that resilience protects them. The article is The Repertoire of Resilience, Black Women's Social Resistance to Suicide by Kamisha Spates and Brittany Slatten. So let me find what the woman said. Okay, so let's look at what the research said. 45% of the women researched in the study evaluate privilege or lack thereof very differently from the dominant society. They did not place inordinate value on society's privileged groups. In fact, they perceived white men and better situated minorities as weaker and less capable of handling struggle because of their privilege. Kelly, age 34, said, as far as white men, I don't think they've been through enough and they don't know how to take pressure. They don't know how to take any oppression because they've been given so much and they haven't been taught how to handle life when things don't work out. The women agreed that as a privileged group, white men are given opportunities and advantages because they so rarely experience difficult times. They do not learn how to contend with life stressors and are unable to cope. In contrast, they viewed their own lack of privilege as a source of strength, experience, and capability for contending with adverse times and pressure-filled situations. A woman named Tasha in the study said, white men in general have a lot of things that are working for them just by virtue of the fact that they are white and they are males. They have more advantages and an easier road to hoe, as my grandmother would say. And so maybe when they get to a rocky part in the road, they do not know how to handle it. They do not know where to turn because they haven't built that strength. Black women have had centuries to build strength. The participants defined themselves as more capable than white men and other minority groups. They perceive their marginalized social status and lack of privilege not as a social deficit, but as a means by which they have developed their capacity for contending with adverse situations. Justine, who was a woman who was also interviewed, eloquently stated that unlike other social groups, black women, quote, know what struggle is and what to do when we struggle. What stood out to me in, in learning about this research is the community, the shared experiences of struggle, centuries of strength building. So this is like an ancestral influence, right? Like we know our ancestors struggled and survived because I am here, right? The centuries of strength building and calling into the room that the centuries of strength building, it's in my bones, it's in my cells, it's in my blood. And then this idea of the counter evaluation of privilege that Justine said, we know what struggle is and what to do when we struggle. I want to end this program by talking about psychotherapy that has been studied for reducing the risk of suicide. And there's a program that's called in Social Engage. And it's, I believe, a 10-session program for older adults who report social disconnection. And, and that therefore increases their risk for suicide as part of those five Ds of suicide risk. In this treatment, participants focus each session on social engagement. And, and the studies have showed that it reduces depressive symptoms and improves social emotional quality of life. Other interventions to reduce loneliness are also proving to be helpful and that and that sort of addresses that disconnection. One study looked at using tailored social connectedness interventions. So people with small to moderate networks may benefit from interventions designed to build friendships. 
individuals that have many close confidants may benefit the most from psychotherapy, and individuals reporting moderately frequent contact with medium-sized social networks may benefit from interventions designed to build friendships as well as psychotherapy. So there's some interesting research around loneliness and disconnection. So there are interventions that are working and are helpful. And like I said before, depression is not a normal part of aging. It needs to be worked up. It can be treated and treatment is incredibly effective for older adults. All right, that's all for today. Uh, Don't forget to head on over to the website to get your continuing education. Bye for now. That's all for today. Just a reminder, if you're a licensed mental health provider looking for continuing education focused on mental health and aging, simply go to mentalhealthandaging.com to learn more about how to earn your CEUs. Calling all mental health providers. Have you been feeling ineffective, stuck, or unsure of how to best help your client with memory loss? Well, it's not your fault. Most therapists haven't had any training in addressing memory loss or cognitive changes in therapy. But I got something for you. In my free 10-minute video where I walk you through five steps for helping your clients presenting with memory loss, you'll learn the difference between memory loss and mental health concerns for older adults and how to help. Get this free training and a bonus workbook that you can start using in your clinic today. Simply go to www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity to learn more. That's www.mentalhealthandaging.com forward slash clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.